Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Lisa Wise. Lisa is the chief rooster, chief nester, and owner of Nest DC. In addition to Lisa's fun sense of humor and great understanding of powerful branding, Lisa is a truly purpose-driven leader that has enabled all of her organizations and team members to stay focused on a greater purpose and having an impact on the community. That's why I really enjoyed the conversation with Lisa, both with respect to how she came about with the different ideas revolving around Nest DC and how she has continued leading the organization to stay focused on purpose through the pandemic and beyond. And the commitment she continues to show to the community and to give back. I'm sure you will really enjoy hearing Lisa's story too, as well as learning from her what being purpose-driven is all about. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanadmahantavikoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy getting those voice messages. Don't forget to follow the podcast. Tuesday conversations with magnificent change makers from the greater Washington, D.C. DMV region, like Lisa Wise, and Thursday conversations with brilliant global thought leaders. Now, here's my conversation with the chief rooster, chief nester of Nest DC, Lisa Wise. Lisa Wise, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited, Lisa, having gotten a chance to get to know you and also know some of your purpose-driven impact on the community, both with respect to the organization that you run and so much community involvement you have. But before we get to that, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person and leader you've become, Lisa. I like that question. The origin story, right? I think all of us, if we're lucky, can look back at that moment in time when we were younger, those foundational experiences, and see a little bit more about why our our current state of being is what it is. Most of my growing up was spent in Idaho, throughout Southern Idaho, but I also lived in California, Connecticut, Colorado. We moved around a lot. So many of my formative years were spent in Haley, Idaho, Boise, Idaho, Pocatello, Idaho, And then later, we moved to the East Coast. I lived in the Washington, D.C. area for a few years before I went to college. So my childhood can be really defined as full of moves, certainly a lot of housing insecurity. I lived in 23 different homes before I went to college. Oh, wow. I was good at packing boxes. (laughs) Maybe not a life skill we need, but it's one I certainly acquired over time. When you reflect on it, Lisa, those moves have an impact on us, on different people, different ways. How did that shape your belief about the world around you and who you've become? Growing up with any degree of insecurity was life-defining for me. I think the housing insecurity in particular had profound impact on me. Not only did we have a lot of moves under our belts and we're really finding ourselves in different states and cities 
across the United States, but there were in many ways a lack of just general resources, right? So there were two things at play for me growing up. One was the housing insecurity and feeling like I wanted a sense of secure home. And the other was just feeling financially vulnerable as a kid, feeling like there wasn't always enough food necessarily. We were very much living paycheck as a family. You know, over time that changed for me, but from an early age, I was really born to make money and be an entrepreneur. It was just baked into my personality. And so as a kid, for me, building security, my counterpoint to sort of my chaotic childhood was to make money. And I would come up with every kind of little small odd job you could think of. And I would stack them. There's no reason to stick to one job when you can have five different irons in the fire. And so I was able to really save a lot growing up and build this nest egg for myself. No pun intended, or maybe there's pun intended because we're talking about <laughs> businesses. That financial cushion that I was aware of really young, needing to have in order to have a sense of stability and security and some safety, that paired with the housing component really informed where I would find myself career-wise long-term. And now, of course, I work in the home management space and with a lot of detours along the way. But it's very clear that where I am professionally today is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I wonder, Lisa, how did that impact your relationship with your immediate family? How did they impact your ability to connect with people externally to your family? Yeah, I like that question a lot. It's a thoughtful one. You know, my family's fairly fractured. A lot of what led to the moving was divorce and just family chaos, right? There wasn't a strong source of comfort from family. And so moving around and like having your family unit go from place to place didn't bring that sense of comfort for me, though it's very logical that it would. And so it was also complicated to build relationships during that time because we were more or less transient. And so, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, this friend from XYZ grade. And I have no frame of reference for what it's like to have relationships that have survived that length of time because I just wasn't in any one place long enough to form them. And I feel that that's been a deficit to some extent. But in 1990, when I went to college, I came out as a gay woman. For any of those folks listening will relate to the fact that particularly at the time when I came out, it was not looked upon very favorably. And so when you're living your authentic self and that self doesn't necessarily click in with how society wants to see you or embrace you, you learn very quickly how to build a chosen family. Surround yourself by people who are supportive and empathic and caring and sort of give you that sense of family that you may have lost and or not had as a result of your identity. And for me, I became really versed at that time in my life in saying, I have to kind of start over and build relationships that I nurture and invest in deeply over time. I think those skills have certainly come in handy during a pandemic. Funny enough, I had a roommate my freshman year. We had four classes together at a giant university. I think it was probably statistically impossible that we would have four classes together with 40,000 plus students. (laughs) (laughs) She became a fast friend. And to this day, 30 years later, we're in daily conversation. I consider wherever Francis is to be home. That to me is just as valid and empowering and impactful as my sense of home base and identity as a traditional biological family might be. That's wonderful that you were able to have that connection. At a time, it's important to reflect on this, Lisa. There has been tremendous progress with respect to marriage equality over the past couple of decades. But for people to reflect on the fact that when Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, after that, don't ask, don't tell was a huge controversy. So just don't ask, don't tell. So when people think about coming out, 
it is very different now than it was at a time you were going through college. Yeah, honestly, even that's a privilege. The accelerated timeline within which I have gone from feeling like I'm not supposed to tell anybody who I am to I'm announcing it happily and without any sense of internal conflict on a podcast (laughs) says a lot, right? And I'm thrilled for that. I'm also at the same time, I have a hard time understanding the contrast between that and race and class and ethnicity and disability and all the other areas in which our country has not done a good job of advancing equality at the same pace. And there will always need to be movement around gender identity and equality, but there's still so much work to do globally around any community that is not considered equal to as they should be. Wouldn't it be beautiful if 20, 30 years from now, Lisa, we are having a conversation and we reflect back to the anti-racism conversations of this day and have to tell our children, grandchildren, or whoever else, oh, you wouldn't believe there was a time when we had to have those conversations. Having made so much progress, because I know this is something that is really important to you, core to your identity and core to what you do as an entrepreneur also. Absolutely. I hope to have that conversation. (laughs) I'll look forward to it. I'll put it in my calendar. I also understand that right after uh, college, Lisa, you lost your mom and that was a significant moment in your life. It was, yeah. Losing a parent is really life-defining, I think, at any age. And I've known people, of course, who've lost parents at all sort of moments in life. There isn't a moment that's better or worse, right? But I was 24 when my mom passed away. It was very jarring. Again, life-defining. When my mom died, the sense of family unit really completely vanished at that point. And so my personal vulnerability became even more pronounced. My mom was a very strong, driven, very professional, accomplished woman. And I felt that she had given me a toolkit around being a feminist, around being driven, around being very independent. And that to honor her, I really needed to be as ambitious and as driven and as successful as I could be. And that that was to honor her, but it was also to make sure that I was protected because there wasn't going to be anybody that I could really lean on in case something happened. So that lifeline was no longer available. And it was a really scary time for me. But as with most scary times, I just rally and find a path through it to see if I can get by stronger instead of weaker. And I think that that's certainly what I did when my mom passed away. You continued getting stronger. And then back in 1997, you bought an 1893 duplex. What got you to do that, Lisa? Ironically, when my mom died, suddenly and surprisingly, I'd been caring for a cousin of mine who lived in Tucson, Arizona, a cousin that I hadn't known existed. And my aunt Susan called me out of the blue and said, you know, you have a cousin, Richard, that lives in Tucson and he's your dad's age and my age. And she said, you know, you should get together with him. I think you'd like him. And I thought, this is interesting. I've never heard about Richard before this. So great. He'll probably be good for a meal. He probably lives in the foothills. You know, I live in sort of student housing downtown or whatever. So I called him up and they said, oh, it'd be great to meet. And he said, meet me at the street corner in the barrio, which is, you know, the Mexican neighborhood in downtown. And I said, okay, great. So I get eyeballs on this guy and I'm like, oh, there's no wife. (laughs) (laughs) And now I know why nobody talked about Richard because he was as gay as he got. He was an interpretive 
contemporary dancer, an architect, an artist, and we were immediately smitten with each other. There was just an instant connection between the two of us. And we became very, very close, very quickly, and spent a lot of time together. And Richard developed full-blown AIDS. And he developed AIDS about two years before my mom passed away. And I was more or less his primary caretaker. And he was the one that called to tell me that my mom had died. I was so floored because I had been preparing for him to die. And so it was such a strange reality check that sort of what you think you're prepared for is maybe not what's up ahead. Richard did pass away nine months later. His sort of parting wish was that I fly his ashes over the Catalina Mountains, that I take over his lease for his apartment, his own adobe house, which I loved, and that I take his car and settle up his estate. And I said, okay, I can do the ashes. I can take the car. I can settle up your estate. That's no problem. But I'm not taking over your lease because I don't (laughs) want to rent. (laughs) I want a home of my own. So I took the car and I sold it. It was a black Honda Civic. And Inc. Magazine just did an article about this very story last week, which was nice. And I sold the car for $8,300. And I called my landlord who lived in Australia, of all places. And I said, listen, I don't think it seems to make a lot of sense for you to own a property from Australia. And I live in one half already. And it's a duplex. And would you be interested in selling? And he said, you know what? Yeah, I don't think I have any business owning that property anymore. I don't think we're coming back. And I offered $83,000. I had my 10% down payment. I scrambled together some other cash that I had saved probably from one of my side hustles as a kid. And I went to the uh, used bookstore and I got a kit on how to buy a house. Like it had all the forms that you fill in and we faxed them back and forth. And I picked a title company and boom, I got myself a really competitive 8.5% interest rate. I was a homeowner. Everything about my life changed from that moment forward because... I automatically became a landlady. I had another one-bedroom unit on the other side that I was managing and his portion of the rent covered 75% of my mortgage. And then I had a roommate and then I was kind of net positive every month. And so I would use the money I saved in paying for rent to fix up the house. I learned everything I know about home repair while improving on that Rubio downtown duplex. And they still have that house. It still is really important for me to keep it. Everything from patching the roof to fixing the Adobe to tiling to electrical to moving walls. Like I just learned how to do all of it because if I didn't do it, I couldn't afford to have anybody do it. So I just learned to bring my crew together and have a lot of beer and pizza. And that began my journey into being a property manager and being and helping people have a great living space. I remember having an incredible sense of community with my tenant or resident and just how sort of enriching that was as an experience. I felt like I really was able to improve his life as a result of offering a really great rental space for him, a great home. You didn't immediately from then go into real estate management, Lisa. You had an experience for about 15 years working in nonprofits, including serving as an executive director for an environmental nonprofit. What drew you into the nonprofit sector to spend significant portion of your career there. Yeah. You know, when I talk about security and justice as a kid, I wasn't just motivated to create security for myself. I was always observant and looking around the space and reading the room and saying, I don't want anybody to be insecure. And so whatever I do in service to myself should also be in service to others. That's always been the formula. A nonprofit trajectory professionally made perfect sense given my value system and given that I really was motivated to give back. 
And especially since I always felt like I could have my side businesses, it was a nice pairing to have that that entrepreneurial spirit itch was scratched. And then I was able to continue to build some financial security for myself while at the same time pursuing work that I felt was very anchored in my values, my social, my sense of social justice. And, you know, I worked in the healthcare environment. I worked for Planned Parenthood for a number of years. I was the executive director for an environmental organization. And all of that work and much of it was satisfying, but I started to hit a point at which I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm actually raising money to justify jobs, which is not a bad thing to do. I'm not certain what I'm doing is making a difference. And I want to touch people's day-to-day lives every day, not just be managing or fundraising for educational programs or policy work just seems too far away from people's lives. And so for me, I think that was the moment at which I realized, uh, and this is right at the heart of recession, that there was probably a different path for me. And it was time to pursue that and experiment with what it would be like to be a full-blown, full-time businesswoman. And I had the good fortune of being very driven and can do two jobs at the same time. So not simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) So I worked a full-time job while I started the company, which at the time was known exclusively as Nest. You started Nest, but Nest is in property management and property management, Lisa, is not typically seen as being purpose driven. How were you able to start with a mindset of doing property management in a way that also includes purpose baked into the core of the organization? We think of purpose as a three-dimensional effort. So it's not just the resident experience. It's not just the employee experience. It's in the way that we operate our company. It's how we give back to community. It's really baked and wired into everything that we do. But fundamentally speaking, the purpose component of property management is to say, we provide high quality, dignified housing to people and create safe home spaces for them. That's a really meaningful act. It became even more meaningful during the pandemic. We care about our resident experience. We're not interested in profit first, but people in place first. And then we think the profit will come. We believe that doing good business leads to more business. That when people are happy in their homes, they make better neighbors, lead to better, happier neighborhoods and communities. They're more robust local economies. When you're tending to and caring for the people that are caring for the homes that you're renting, it's a win-win. This idea that the tenant that even the pejorative nature of that term implies that they're a threat when actually they're an asset. They're paying your mortgage. They're caring for that home and space. And are there bad actors on both sides of the equation? Absolutely. But I wasn't going to design a company based on a few bad apples when I could design a company that assumes the best of people. And that's exactly how we wanted to design Nest from the start. And that's been the way that we've done the work since then. How do you, Lisa, make sure that it is part of the practices of the organization? A lot of leaders over the years, most especially over the past few years, talk about purpose, talk about the value of their stakeholders, so on and so forth. However, the actions of the organization don't fully align with the purpose statements or what the leaders say. How do you make sure that the purpose that you just so beautifully articulated is embraced through the actions of all the people that represent the organization, whether interacting with the residents or the rest of the community? A lot of it, Mahan, comes down to money. (laughs) We profit share 60 to 80% 
of our profits each year back to the staff. I wouldn't put that at the top of good business practices, except for us, it's us reinvesting in all the people that made this company successful and saying, we believe in you. Thank you. This was your win, not just mine. And then that extends to how we're investing in our staff financially. We're not just creating robust and rich benefits programs. We're saying, we're investing in you financially throughout the year and at the end of the year. And then we're going to invest in our community. So there are a million things that we can do socially and community-wise that don't cost cash, right? That don't that are about making our space available or promoting organizations. We do all those things. But at the end of the day, sometimes people just need resources. And Birdseed and all of our community giving and the fundraising that we do for organizations is about saying, like, we know you need resources to make your services available. And we want to provide those cash resources. And we want to do it in such a way that we're not creating more burden for you, but we're clearing the path for you to do your best work. It's making those cash investments in the community that we're serving. It's also collecting feedback and listening. So residents, are you having a good experience? Is there something that we can do better? It's sending surveys constantly. It's things as simple as raising a team. And I call it raising in part because I'm the oldest one of the company, and I feel like I've raised everybody in the company. I've been for a long time. That understands that we have a purpose in making our resident lives better, and that we're uniquely positioned to have that impact. And we're not just talking about people that are paying, you know, top dollar for a Logan Circle house. We're talking about a lot of the voucher applicants. We don't just embrace, but we really concierge their program to make sure that they're getting good housing. I had a my now CEO of, of Nest pretty much miss Thanksgiving because of a voucher applicant who was aging out of the foster care system and wasn't going to have any place to live, was waiting for final inspection from the city to apply that voucher. She'd been waiting for months. She was on a basically a number of days left of housing before she was just going to have no place to go. And the inspector was going to fail us because the toilet was dirty. And Steph rerouted herself to that property, met the inspector and said, I will do anything to pass this. This girl needs a home. She took her shirt off, (laughs) cleaned the toilet with her shirt (laughs) and said, does this work? (laughs) Because, you know, a service technician or something had used it. And that young woman was able to move in. It was totally worth it, right? Whatever we need to do to give people access to that dignified housing is what we do. And we will do backflips for it. And I think each of us gets to leave at the end of the day feeling like, wow, we made a substantial contribution to people's lives today. And I think that keeps them coming back because they're also rewarded for it. That captures so much of the beauty of being truly a purpose-driven leader, Lisa. You articulated the purpose of the organization, which is really important. The behaviors of the team members are aligned with that. You were able to also, through storytelling, communicate that purpose in action, which is really important both as you communicate to the podcast community and broadcast it outward and to other people in the organization. Finally, you've also aligned the incentive structures with that purpose. I make fun of many organizations, including Wells Fargo at a point when they were saying the financial well-being of our clients is of utmost importance to us, that was a part of their purpose, while the incentive structures were totally running counter to that. So it's important to keep in mind that the purpose statement by itself is not enough. It's important. The storytelling is another important piece of it. Having people aligned with that purpose is important, but also 
incentivizing people and aligning their incentives with that purpose ensures that people stay aligned in bringing that purpose to life for the community. Absolutely. We can go on about Wells Fargo, but I'll let that one go. <laughs> but it's just because the reason I asked you about it, Lisa, is that I know you're truly purpose-driven, but I want to consistently separate that purpose drive with the countless purpose statements we see from organizations. So it doesn't become this buzzword that every organization talks about purpose. What you outlined there by itself can be a mini course on how to effectively align your team members with purpose. So you have now become Flock, (laughs) continuing on the theme, which is a family of real estate management companies with Nest, Roost, and Starling. Yes. What part is Nest? What part is Roost? What part is Starling? Nest is our legacy brand. That's the management company that I started one property at a time in 2009. And today we manage about 1,300 individual rental units throughout the city. In 2013, I realized that the company was sustainable and I could quit that other full-time job I had. You know, I found it to be just kind of mind-blowing that I finally was going to be secure. I wasn't going to be homeless any minute, that I didn't have to, you know, continue to build this giant fortress around myself. And then I immediately felt bummed out because I was the only one that was going to get to experience that security because I owned the company. I was like, oh, that doesn't seem fair. And I remember the moment vividly, like it went out into this sort of main workspace that we had. And I thought, we did it. Like we're sustainable. We hit 200 units, sort of the magic number in property management. And then I thought, well, gosh, I want everyone to be an owner. I didn't want to mess with Nest. I realized I wanted to sort of keep that where it was, but that created a new entrepreneurial avenue for me to explore what it would be like to actually start another business that was employee-owned. So Roost DC was started as an employee-owned company. It still exists as an employee-owned company. Pretty much everybody was given profit-sharing opportunities that amounted to whatever the buy-in amount would be so that they could buy into Roost and really enjoy the fruits of ownership of a company. And Roost manages condo associations, which was a natural fit for us. We'd already been doing that work. So we just moved it over into a new entity. So Roost today manages about 120 buildings in the Washington, D.C. proper area. And then later, we're like, well, we need to formalize our turnover or maintenance division. And so we decided to really reconfigure the way we operationalized our maintenance and on-the-ground field-based work. And so we decided to give that a name as well. So we called that... It was Operation Starling for a while as we tried to see whether it was going to work or take flight, as we would say around here. (laughs) And it did. And so Starling now really services the different branches of the company. It services both National Service Roost as well. And so those are the three key bird legs that we have right now. We did start a company called Birdwatch or a business unit called Birdwatch. Birdwatch offers a home management service for the homeowner. In other words, if you feel like you want to be a homeowner, but wish you had a landlord to call, that's us. So we basically take the hassle out of homeownership. And while there's no tenant involved, put in a ticket for your broken toilet, put in a ticket because you want your living room painted, put in a ticket because you want your gutters cleaned, we'll go in and inspect your house, we'll put you on a preventive maintenance program. It's a very, very strong idea in a very fractured industry around home maintenance. And so that bird flew the coop. 
that bird <laughs> is now part of a joint venture. We've incorporated as a public benefits corporation in Delaware. We were reborn on January 21st. I have a business partner out of Philly and we'll be expanding that bird into the national market, heading to Philly in April with eyes on every state in the union. So we're definitely on a different path than we had been. Flock will still have a velvet rope around it and do what it does and continue to grow and thrive. And that's our intention and stay very hyper-local. But Birdwatch gave us a flight path to take a lot of what we did really, really well without the complexity and regulatory issues that emerge when you have a tenant relationship. We took all that out, simplified the process and said, we can manage people's homes to perfection. And we can do it with a really high touch, high value, customer service, justice-based intention and really make a difference. And so that's what we're up to now. It's a really different kind of model, very tech-oriented, very high touch service. And so we're excited to see where that gets us. It is exciting because as I mentioned, you've also baked in purpose into all of these entities as part of this flock family. You also, Lisa, launched Birdseed Foundation, which has funded a lot of cool projects in the community. What has been the intention behind Birdseed Foundation and what do you hope to be able to do with that? We were formalizing our philanthropy a number of years ago and had set up sort of internal committees around how we wanted to be as intentional as possible and make the process of philanthropy inclusive of the whole team, not have one person sort of decide what we give to. We wanted people and our team members really participating in what it meant for us to be engaged in community and supporting community financially and otherwise. So I don't know, it just popped out of my head that it needed to be called Birdseed, that that would be the name of the committee. You know, we made a very simple plan. We wanted community engagement, which means that we're interested and excited about giving small businesses visibility, doing trash walks, volunteering for different things, driving food for the Latin American Youth Center, which a lot of our team members do. I mean, we were always engaged in doing things that give back. That's a timepiece, right? It's the community timepiece. Each year, we host a casino night fundraiser for La Clinica del Pueblo. Uh, which is a federally qualified wraparound healthcare center. I used to be the board chair there. We know that money is a game changer for them. We try and, and actually manage all the work that goes into producing that event. 100% of the proceeds go to them. So there's that aspect as well that comes under the bird seed philosophy of why we give back to the community that serves us. And then we started a micro-grant program. We feel like people who are doers, makers, and disruptors need cash as much as anybody else does. And the barrier to that cash is, well, if the cash even exists, who knows? And secondarily, there a lot of funders like to create a lot of steps <laughs> to being qualified or to having things documented or proving impact. And having come from a nonprofit background, I thought, that seems dumb. Let's just go ahead and make money accessible, easy to get, <laughs> and like impactful if you can. And if someone doesn't do a good thing with it, let's just move on. So... I like to think everything is simple. I like to make everything as simple as possible, even though I have this very complex set of businesses. So the microgrant program was our first launch. And we basically said, if you're a doer, a maker, or a disruptor in the city, give us a proposal. It cannot be longer than one page or you're disqualified <laughs> because you can't read more than a page. You don't have to be a 501c3. You have to be able to complete your project in three months. And then we'll just give you 2500 bucks. That program was simple, easy to administer, very popular. We got so many cool applications over the years. We still run that program. We've done everything from food justice work. We helped a guy who had a hot sauce recipe that he got from his family and he was growing the tomatoes on like roof decks around the city. And so <laughs> I didn't want him to have to pay taxes on like 
the procurement that he was going to use the cash for. So we bought all the bottles for him. And like, at one point there were just bottles everywhere. And we're like, why are all these bottles here? I'm like, it's the hot sauce guy. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we funded a bicycle repair station in Southeast. We supported a woman who throws birthday parties for homeless children. We gave a grant to a community of black girls. Code, and then we were able to actually make our spaces available for their trainings. So we've done a lot. We bought, we helped a veteran farmer buy, help him buy a tractor. So these were all things where like, yep, this is very tangible, impactful. This got done. This mural is now here. It wasn't there before. And so it felt really good to make those dollars available to folks that just typically don't qualify for them. That felt great. And then the pandemic comes along and then George Floyd is murdered. And we're like, hmm, there is so much more work we need to be doing around housing justice and racial equity, what the real estate world's role has been in designing that injustice. I was in the process of going through a lot of estate planning because that's a responsible thing to do. And the pandemic is inspiring in that regard. And so I go on this late night walk where I do my best thinking. And I was, we were trying to think through like, okay, well, what happened? Like all these life insurance policies that'll get triggered because I was a responsible business owner. I'm like, you know, I want to give the company back to the employees in the event that I die. And I want to set some aside for high impact investment in the community. And I kept thinking like, oh, I'm very engaged in all these organizations, but yet nothing felt right. So the one part of the walk, one half of the walk, I get to the end and I say, I need to just help people buy houses. That's what I want to do. I want to help people buy houses who typically wouldn't be given like an $8,300 windfall, like a Honda Civic. I turned around and I'm like thinking, thinking, thinking. And I thought, gosh, it's too bad I have to be dead for that to happen. <laughs> maybe, maybe I could start working on something like that now. <laughs> and so by the end of the walk, I was texting the president of my company, Grace Langham. And I said, listen, it's time for us to free up some cash that we don't really have and dedicate money to helping people buy homes. And I want money set aside for the BIPOC community to help them with down payments. And she said, that sounds amazing. We've been talking about how we get more engaged in housing justice. Are you thinking 2022? And this was 2020. And I said, I'm kind of thinking next week. And she said, well, <laughs> love it. <laughs> I'm a little oversubscribed. We have a lot going on. And I said, that's all right. I understand that this is a really tricky time, but it's also the best time. So I'll get everything rolling. And then we'll see what we need resource-wise to get it delivered. And that was when the housing justice component of the Birdseed Foundation really came to be when we started to consider and talk about ourselves as a foundation, which we technically are now. We set up some partnerships. We committed $215,000. We've been able to raise another $85,000 for that work. And we've had five families move into homes with four more looking. And we'll make another round of four grants next week. And that's just the first year. So we only launched the foundation a year ago, technically, for the housing justice work. That is incredible having launched it at a time where... You could have had all the reasons or the excuses in the world not to do it, Lisa, which makes it even more meaningful in that you took that moment of clarity of why not make the difference while I am around and channeled it into making that difference now rather than when things settle down, which might never happen, that hypothetical future. But that said, you also had to manage the organization through the pandemic. 
has continued to be rough for many people and many organizations. How did the pandemic impact Flock and how were you able to lead the organization through? I tried to lead by example. I made two very big decisions quickly. One was to take a 75% pay cut before we went into lockdown. And the other was to freeze all spending so that we didn't have to do layoffs. And then I committed to being in touch with my staff every single day, whatever I could update them on and just be present and communicative and authentic and sincere and as vulnerable as the rest of my team was, but also assuring people that if a company can get through it, it's us. Housing will always be needed. This will be a rough time. I will do everything I can to protect you, to protect our residents and to protect our community. And that commitment to constant check-ins with my team, I think gave them just the assurance that like work didn't need to be a source of exceptional anxiety, that we were going to do everything we could to make this an okay space in place. We were going to try everything we could to take care of everybody, that people could exhale a little bit. But I wasn't offering promises or assurances. I was just communicating. And I, it's funny, I had someone on my team who's now vice president. And he said, every day when I get your updates, I just feel like, okay, I got the update from Lisa. She says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I thought, I've never said it's going to be okay. <laughs> not one. <laughs> because I was very clear about not saying like, oh, we'll have this wrapped in a couple of weeks. I mean, I was honest because that's the best way to be as a leader and transparent. I had as much humility as possible. I'm scared too. I will do everything I can for you. <laughs> but I don't have any superpowers except to be caring and empathic. But the fact that those updates clearly did provide a significant measure of comfort for him, made me feel good that that constant conversation. And it's so funny. I mean, I heard people say like, my spouse hasn't heard from their boss in two months. <laughs> like that's a really scary place. So I think it was that communication and saying like, I will go without so that you don't have to, I think made a pretty strong statement. And I was happy to continue to do that for as long as it took. It is a strong statement, Lisa. And it's also really important. I did a solo episode on this a while back where leaders don't need to communicate certainty with respect to the future. There is very little certainty. However, the clarity and that humility that we are working it out together helps people feel reassured. So you communicated with your team on a consistent basis. That is really important. Some leaders have clammed up and clam up when things go wrong, assuming that their people want them to tell them that things are going to be okay. It's a little bit like as if the team members are kids around the table who need to be told, kids, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. People aren't looking for that, weren't and aren't looking for that from their leaders. They want that authenticity of communication consistency, and also the leaders being willing to step first themselves before they ask others to make sacrifices. Absolutely. You're spot on. Lisa, at the same time as you had to do this, your second year as a board member of Whitman Walker Health, you stepped in as chair of the organization. So you are chair at a time where we are hit with a pandemic in your second year on the board. How were you able to handle that? Yeah, that was poor timing. (laughs) 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 To put it mildly. I mean, to chair a healthcare organization that serves 
20 plus thousand patients they can't see in person and is facing the same financial ruin that any of us are really. And the complexity of having to completely reorient the way that we're delivering care and service and then all the regulatory complexity even around remote and telehealth. And I mean, wow, I have never been in a situation where I had as much to learn. The first meeting that I had as board chair was February of 2020. So I had to learn how to lead this organization in via Zoom. It was rough. <laughs> uh, no first of all, the, for the first six months, everybody just is in shock. They're like, you know, like, and so finally, I'm just, just like, I gotta warm this room up. And I was like, who has a puppy? And so half the room picked up their puppy. <laughs> like, there has to be some way to make this easier. You know, the CEO of Whitman Walker Health, Nassima Safi, is incredible. I think the two of us together were a good pair. I think we were very present for each other, both emotionally and professionally, which was helpful. I had her back. I think Whitman Walker Health serves and has a specialty in the LGBTQ health community. But I mean, I think the political unrest was also really scary and frightening for all of us during that time. And I was happy and have been happy to serve. I will continue with yet another year as board chair. And I did that for the community <laughs> that it offers Nestima into the organization as they go through some leadership transitions. I felt like staying seated was good. I have been honored and really privileged to learn as much as I have. And so, yes, it's been an extreme amount of work, but it was a calling for me, I think in particular because St. Elizabeth's is the next project for Whitman Walker Health. We're moving east of the river. We're going to be able to serve more, particularly BIPOC community members. The LGBTQ movement, for personal reasons, is very close to my heart, particularly since that's how my cousin passed away from AIDS. Like All of these things sort of come together in terms of housing, in terms of community engagement, because Whitman Walker developed a huge housing community on uh, 14th Street. So like it all kind of connected and clicked and the timing was good, except the timing was terrible. So <laughs> that seems to be the story behind the hashtag for pandemic bad timing. <laughs> but I made the best of it. And I felt, again, honored to serve. The beautiful part of your story, Lisa, is that you have baked in purpose into Flock. You don't just outsource purpose to the community activities. You have Birdseed Foundation, which contributes back. Additionally, you've continued serving the community in this instance as board chair of Whitman Walker Health. So lots of giving back to this community through your personal and authentic leadership. Now, one of the things I believe, Lisa, that has made you so empathetic, so able to understand people's needs and communities' needs is the fact that, as you mentioned, through your upbringing, you went to 23 different homes before college. The challenges in your life helped you see challenges people face and now as a leader, you are looking to give back through all that you do with the roles that you serve. You have a son who is 10 years old. He is fortunate to not have to go through what you went through. That said, how do you make sure that he grows up with a sense of responsibility to the community and he can give back the way you are giving back now? There's a lot of thought that goes into me not raising a child who feels entitled to privilege. <laughs> he is lucky. He won the lottery, right? All of us are just a product of chance and timing. 
And his timing was perfect. He has two moms that love him. He has all the safety and security that I never had growing up. And so we talked about this earlier. You don't want bad things to happen to your kids. But how do you give them some grit? How do you remind them that you're not entitled to what you have? You were lucky. And so we just talk about it every single day, all day, to the point where it's like, you have to stop from weekend trash water. <laughs> Picking up trash when they get... It's very hard to find volunteer activities where they allow children, like little children. So I've been picking trash up with this kid for 10 years because that's a very... <laughs> the skill level zero, he just pointed and I would pick things up. You know, every year we deliver food around the holidays and then we do it periodically throughout the year. And we had a lot of turkeys that he couldn't carry that we were trying to get to people. And we've got him very tuned in and connected to what it means to be a social justice warrior, to remind himself that my privilege is not something I'm entitled to. Actually, it's my responsibility to help other people enjoy some of the things that I've had access to in life. We just keep it a, a constant topic of conversation. He's naturally giving, which is nice to see. He had his cousins over recently and he's, you know, they liked his things and he's like, well, you should have them. <laughs> and so he just like gave them all. <laughs> and we talk about how he shares not only just his time or his, the money or the resources, the things that he has, but that he shares his kindness with other people and that he appreciates what he has and he does what he can to make sure other people have those things as well. So from weekend sandwich making, from Martha's Kitchen, like we're always, always doing something as a family. That's wonderful because again, it's through that example that you show him as his parents, his moms, what it is like to serve, give back, be grateful for the many privileges that we have, as you said, in many instances, based on luck and based on chance. So Lisa, when you're asked for leadership resources and practices, are there any you typically find yourself recommending to others? Leadership and practices. You know, I learned everything I know about business reading magazines because <laughs> I have a film degree. I don't know. I mean, I really did learn everything I know about business by reading magazines. You know, I just read all the time. I read as much as possible. I read a lot about business. I read a lot about race. I read a lot about the economy. I read a lot. You know, I just, I'm constantly consuming. I'm always interested in hearing other people's stories and journeys around how they got where they are. I don't think we can have empathy unless we have curiosity. And so I don't think it matters which book turns you on or gives you a better sense of what your path is. Just being open to consuming and learning more and expanding your brain, I think is the trick there. It is really helpful understanding the journey of other people. And your journey, Lisa Wise, has been one that has focused in giving back, being of service, not just through words, through actions, whether it is with the Flock family of real estate management companies, Nest, Bruce, Starling, Birdseed Foundation, your involvement at Whitman Walker, so many other community activities you get engaged in. I truly appreciate you sharing your leadership journey with the Partnering Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa Wise. Thank you. What a great conversation. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.